legalizefreedom.com. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Mark Stavish, who joins us to discuss his book, The Path of Freemasonry, The Craft as a spiritual practice. In this practical guide, Mark details the spiritual lessons and rituals of Freemasonry as a step-by-step path of spiritual development and self-improvement for both Masons and non-Masons, men and women alike. He explores the history and meaning of Freemasonry and its symbols, from its origins in the Temple of Solomon, to the medieval craft guilds, to the Renaissance, and explains how the craft promotes personal growth through the symbolic building of self and an inner temple of wisdom in much the same way that masonry's rituals symbolize the building of Solomon's temple in accordance with mystical architectural instructions. Drawing on esoteric doctrines including the Kabbalah, alchemy, sacred geometry and the secrets of the Gothic cathedral builders, each chapter addresses an area of the Masonic experience, paralleling them with experiences each of us find in our own lives. The author provides simple practices to help internalize and personalize the lessons presented, including dream work, journaling, meditation, prayer, and understanding sacred architecture. Providing the tools to make the craft an initiatory experience of self-improvement, Stavish shows that ultimately the Masonic experience is the human quest for self-realization and self-expression so that we may each find our place in the Temple of Wisdom. Hello and welcome, Mark, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thank you very much, Greg. It's great to be back. It's been about uh, a year and a half, has it been? Not, that, not that? quite that long, uh, but yeah, I mean, certainly it's been, it's been a while. But we're definitely overdue a catch-up. Uh, now, you've got a new book coming out uh, entitled The Path of Freemasonry. The craft as a spiritual practice. We'll be talking about that and other things spinning off from that. But before we get started, just tell uh, listeners, for those who don't know, a little bit about your background and your work in general. Well, I have uh, quite a few decades experience in esotericism, both through various uh, esoteric orders and through uh, family connections, uh, going back to the uh, late 19th century, even well, even earlier. Um, my biography is fairly well known on, on the internet at our website, uh, the Hermetic Institute. Uh, we've got lots of classes that we've done over the years that have resulted in the publication of 30 or more books on uh, practical uh, esotericism and uh, occultism through alchemy, uh, astrology, uh, Kabbalah, uh, Pennsylvania German folk magic, and uh, various, we'll call it ancillary topics, things that are often ignored but are incredibly important to one's spiritual practice, particularly um, 
lucid dreaming and astral projection on the body of light and, and, and how does that fit into one's uh, day-to-day practices? Now, I've said a little bit in my recorded introduction about Freemasonry, but what, I mean, what can we say briefly about, you know, what it is or perhaps more importantly, what it is not? I mean, from your book, The Free is a System of Moral Teachings Veiled in Symbolism, um, I like, but that in itself prompts more questions than it sort of provides answers, really. Well, and it's supposed to. I mean, it's not my definition of Freemasonry. Uh, it is the one that one gets bantered about quite often from Freemasons themselves. And what that's referring to is the fact that Freemasonry is a very big tent. And historically, we look to the founding of the United Grand Lodge of England in 1717. But that means there had to be other bodies that went back prior to it. And that this was the formation of a Grand Lodge, not the formation of Freemasonry itself. And within that framework, as Freemasonry has grown in international stature over the last 300 plus years, we see many types of men joining it from all walks of life into its various rites and degrees and orders. So when we look at this as a large tent, a place where many men can come together, and we'll talk about women in Freemasonry later as well, we see that they come with various backgrounds. In many ways, Freemasonry was the first truly ecumenical entity of its day. That is, uh, the discussion of religion and uh, politics were forbidden, and that you saw men coming together to form these bodies or to be involved in these bodies that were of different religious backgrounds. Now, at that time, that often meant one or more of the different Protestant sects, possibly Roman Catholic, and as well as Jewish. You see in the formation of the Grand Lodge of Pennsylvania during the colonial period, approximately 30 years after the founding of the first of the ugly, the United Grand Lodge of England, uh, that, uh, you know, it's found some of its founding members were Jewish. So within that framework, Freemasonry has offered a mechanism for men of goodwill to come together in some degree of harmony where they can elect their own leaders, the officers in a lodge are elected by the members, where they ballot on who their members will be for the good of the order, for the harmony of that particular lodge, and to undertake whatever projects they feel are of importance. Now, this is where we get into different aspects of masonry. Masonry is fundamentally three things. It is fraternity, as we refer to the brotherhood, the coming together of the brethren. It is charity. It does many charitable works. Masonic charity in the United States, and the numbers escape me, but go anywhere from one to two million dollars a day in activity. The Masonic Children's Hospitals, uh, run by the Shrine, the Shriners, who, who are the focal point of that finance, although there's also things such as the Knights Templars Eye Fund and other, uh, charitable things that are run. Those hospitals work free of charge. Uh, you can get picked up, dropped off, and taken care of while your child receives first-rate medical care. And what's fascinating about that is these hospitals were indeed sued several years back by insurance companies because the insurance companies felt that they were operating at a, uh, these shrine hospitals were operating at an unfair advantage. I want that to sink into the listeners about what a, I'll state, truly cruel and evil statement that is. These men and women who 
raise money for this and uh, work there and, and help children. We're doing uh, and, and doing it for the families free of charge based on the donations and the supports of probably a century more. I want that to sink in too. A century more of uh, charitable uh, work and investment allows these hospitals to help men. I was, I, excuse me, children, but I think they also open up to veterans too, to some degree, for, and some of them for the burn centers and critical care areas. We're told they have to charge, so they said, well, we'll charge, but it doesn't necessarily mean we'll collect on that charge. And I, I think that there's just a uh, an important aspect needs to be understood about what Freemasonry is. Now, within this framework, too, we also find that Anglo-Saxon masonry, and particularly in North America, has lost a fair amount of its philosophical aspect. And that's what many people think of when they think of masonry, the secrets of masonry, the symbols of masonry, the occultism, uh, which is hidden. And that is extremely prominent in continental masonry, the French rites, the Italian rites, the German rites, all these other, uh, even the Swedish rites. It's very strong. And then they see Dan Brown's writings, or the movies based on them, and they, they join a lodge and they expect to learn great esoteric secrets. And uh, they're often highly disappointed, as well they should be. And I'll state that honestly. We, we do a great deal of good in charity, we do a great deal of good in fraternity, but we have been very weak on the philosophical. However, that has taken a change in the last 20 years, but the last 10 in particular, within the United States, something known as the Traditional Observance Lodge, or Traditional Observance Movement, taking place. In here, lodges are set up to be done as they were traditionally, let's say 150 years ago, 200 years ago, in which uh, members of the lodge present papers on philosophical topics and are listened to and voted on, and there's a lengthy period of time between one's movement up the chain, that is, from entered apprentice to uh, fellow craft to master mason. And uh, for those who are not as dedicated in that sense, who don't want to present papers but be educated, you have philosophical style lodges where you have a more philosophical view and approach. So that's kind of a summary of what Freemasonry is, and uh, at least in the Anglo-Saxon experience and in North American in particular. Well, um, when I was growing up, um, most of the men, there weren't that many of them, but most of the men in my family, including my uncle, my uh, my mother's sister's husband, basically, and my grandfather also, who basically took the place of my father when he was out of the scene quite early on. Uh, they were Freemasons, and they never talked about it, really, um, and I never asked about it, but it was certainly something that was entirely uncontroversial as far as I could see, and it was only when I went out into the world that I started to see people commenting negatively on Freemasonry as basically some kind of, um, as if helping other people or even mutual aid is some kind of bad thing. But it was kind of, I saw it being presented as kind of like an exclusive club where people somehow, to, to use the, the phrase that you mentioned there with that hospital, uh, people somehow operating at an unfair advantage using not quite sure what that was kept from other people to their advantage. But as I say, when, when I was, when I was young, it was, uh, the, the, the men in the family, they, it, it seemed to me, um, basically to be, it was a bit like a rotary club, I suppose. I just thought of it as they were helping other people doing charitable works. And, uh, also there was that degree of, um, self-improvement. Uh, you know, they were, tr and, and certainly my grandfather is someone who, uh, particularly after his death that I, I've sought to, uh, to emulate. And I wish actually 
uh, well, here we go, story of life, that I've been able to speak to him more about these things um, before he died because I'd love to ask him about his path in the craft. You know, it might have been something for me. I don't know, but he, he's been dead a long time now, actually. Um, well, again, masonry being a big tent has many lodges and many rites. And because it's kind of very organized decentralization, that's a good way to think of it, is a very organized decentralization means that it has been open to abuse over the centuries. There's no question about that. And lodges represent the membership of their community. So you have to be very careful about who you let in, because if you let someone in, uh, once made a Mason, always a Mason, you can't undo what they've learned, what they've experienced. Even if you uh, blackball them, there they, it's not blackball, that's before they get in, but even if they are uh, expelled from the craft. And in that framework, the privacy and secrecy, but it's more of a privacy that goes on, has been somewhat detrimental to the craft for several generations because young men such as yourself were, they'd hear about their father or their grandfather or their uncle being in. They'd see the ring on their finger. They knew they went out once or twice a month or some places every week. Uh, and they didn't know what was going on and no one talked about it. And if you ask a question, instead of being encouraged to question, and I've seen this, you know, locally, there's a, a kind of a, uh, how can I put this? Uh, you, you're kind of ignored. And I think that was fascinating when I watched that. You know, here you have a young guy in his 20s, and he's asking you about masonry, and you're ignoring him. You, you should be listening very carefully and, and talking it up. to an, and, Because part of the craft is you can't invite someone to join. You can't ask someone to join. Well, they've kind of changed that a little bit. You, you can't encourage people to consider it because it's so public now. Uh, but I do believe that that overt secrecy that you're talking about was extremely destructive to probably a good two generations of, of uh, potential members in, in from the 70s onward. Yeah. yeah, and I absolutely did not appreciate I had no way of doing so unless I'd read any books which I didn't at the time we're talking about the 1980s now um, the uh, esoteric dimension in masonry and this the belief in a supreme being whatever one takes that to be now my grandfather to use his example he was brought up uh, this would have been I suppose he would have been a child prior to the second world war uh, he was brought up in a family that were Plymouth Plymouth brethren Mm -hmm. And he always told me why he never went to church because I, I grew up, you know, going to Church of Ireland, which is basically Church of England, just an Irish version of it. So, you know, Anglican, essentially. Mm -hmm. And he never went near the place. And he told me, well, he, I could, I could see, I could hear in his voice and I could see in his eyes that he was saying something. He was always so like even tempered, uh, that he was saying something that he was really passionate about. And he said to me, I had so much religion shoved down my throat when I was a child that I swore I would, you know, I would never go near a church again. But then it, it would be really interesting for me to ask him about, okay, but you, you have apparently as professed belief in a supreme being. Mm -hmm. So, and that's where I find myself in terms of, um, you know, cosmology 
uh, whatever you take the supreme being to be. For for me, it, it takes the form of consciousness being fundamental. You know, there is a vast center of consciousness from from which all else springs. So you can read that as supreme being or not. Well, therein lies the, the difficulty for many to understand that masonry has a series of teachings that are, of course, allegorical, which leaves it to the individual member to understand their meaning. Now, many of these teachings are deeply rooted in alchemy and Kabbalah, primarily Kabbalah uh, and astrology, and uh, that's because of the period in which they were, were created. Uh, many modern brethren, particularly the older members, don't understand that, even though it's very clear in the rituals. And even if you look at some of the old ritual monitors from Scottish Rite, that were printed in the 20, in 30s, 40s, and 50s. It's clearly mentioned in the notes section in the back what it's referring to. But many of the brethren, uh, simply because they come in, they take their oath and obligation, uh, they go through the degrees, they, they take on a role of leadership, uh, they view Masonic education strictly in terms of memorizing the ritual. And younger brethren don't like that. They don't want that. They want more depth. They want to understand what these rituals mean. What is the symbolism all about? And the older brethren are often incapable and quite hostile in some instances. I've had quite a few uh, terrible things said to me by uh, by some brethren in open meetings. Uh, and they weren't lodge meetings. They were other types of meetings. And I just point out very politely, just, well, this is how wrong you are, you know, uh, and how that happens is, you know, as we say, bad money drives out good money and, and bad leadership drives out good leadership. And, and we've seen that into some degrees in masonry, in American masonry, okay, over the last 40 or 50 years. And that had to do with the explosion of the movement after the Second World War. I mean, the high point membership-wise was 1964, 1965, and it, it's been downward ever since. Although, when you're that big, you don't notice it until you can't ignore it anymore. And part of that, of course, was the men coming out of the services looking for fraternity. Now, this is where we get to this old boys network and the boys club. Is that when men were joining, and, and say, for example, and I know this was the case over in England with law enforcement, but say here where I live, uh, there's one, two, three... At least three state prisons in two county within what we'll call reasonable distance of each other. So when you end up with a lot of brethren being in corrections, being correctional officers, you know, that may or may not at some point have been the idea, well, you know, my boss is a Mason. Maybe if I, you know, join the club, uh, it'll help me out you know, in my career. Or someone is in another area of business and they think that if they have the ring on their finger known as light, Masonic light, if they have some light on their finger that somehow that's going to help them. And that's that goes completely against the oath and obligation that you say in the beginning that you're joining free of any mercenary or pecuniary uh, measure. So uh, when we hear about the abuses, that is an abuse of the membership. On the other hand, when you meet someone who is a brother, it's very easy to talk to them because you have things in common. You have a starting point for conversation. And to some degree, and in most instances, I'll tell you quite honestly, despite having very, at times, fairly big differences, 
you do have certain areas of commonality and trust. I mean, you know what this person has experienced, you know what they've agreed to, and you know that there's, there's trust in, in the true sense of the word. And uh, that can be very beneficial, you know, particularly if traveling back then when traveling out of town or to different places. My, my wife and I were talking to our eldest son about that. You know, he's going on a trip uh, not too far away, just to D.C., and we said, well, geez, at least you have a cell phone. You know, when we were your age going to D.C. or someplace like that, you know, if your car broke down, you were in trouble. You know, you had to have a map. You had to know where you're going. You had to have phone numbers written down for people you might be able to call in an emergency, people you didn't even know, but maybe your, your parents knew or your friends knew. You had to have all this kind of stuff set up ahead of time. At least if you were smart, you did. And being in an organization like like Mason's was an, at least a way to get some degree of immediate aid and assistance. Yeah, when I, I, I sub subsequently found this out, the period I described in the 1980s, so the town I was living in was maybe less than half the size it is now, so let's say 10,000 people. You had the chief of police, the guy who lived just down the road from my grandfather was uh, ran the butcher shop, the local lawyer, um, the jeweler, the bank manager, the local doctor, the vet. I subsequently found were all members of the local lodge. And mm -hmm. when you look back at that, it's almost like a situation where the majority of people of, you know, of some standing in the community and, and influence uh, were part of that organization. So perhaps that's where for, for those people who were perhaps not part of that network felt that it was, um, and oh, yeah, also the local pharmacist as well. I'm starting to remember now. And the guy who rep the manager of the local supermarket as well. It's all coming back to me now. Um, true. Your yeah. point is true. Mm. And, and masonry played a tremendous role in healing the rift during the, after, during and after the American Civil War. Mm. Uh, two institutions that were significant in Reconstruction were Freemasonry and West Point. I mean, think about it. During, during the Civil War, the members of one Union general's camp sent a wedding gift to the Confederate general's wife. When a town was under attack, when it was, it was not uncommon for the lodge to be secured and guarded. Um, you see this across the board in many regards. So the, the during the American Revolution, uh, masonry had an interesting role as well. So when you look at that, it is very easy for people to mis make mistakes and not understand what's really going on. And I think some of this plays into the Masonic conspiracy theories. And, I, and I'm not saying that Masonry has not been abused as an entity. We have seen Masonry, Masonic lodges be covers for the Irish Republican Army. We've seen it used as covers for the Ku Klux Klan. Okay. But that is an exception and not the rule. Uh, we have seen Masonic lodges involved in political revolutions, such as the American Revolution, the Boston Tea Party being the perfect example. 
and also the wars of uh, Italian unification and other places as well. So some people will look at Freemasonry as part of the great plot, a great Masonic Jesuit plot of some kind, which is interesting, uh, or, or Jewish Masonic Jesuit plot. And um, I think that when we look at Masonry as a whole, the great fear is of what we don't know. We don't know. People don't know what goes on in those lodges. They're afraid of it. You know, kings were afraid of it. Popes were afraid of it. And, you know, right now, Masonry is a fairly benign entity. But you have to remember, if you were joining a Masonic lodge in the 17th, even into the, or even the 18th century, even into the 19th century, uh, it was a dangerous activity. You could be killed for being a Freemason. Cagliostro was, that's the charges that was used to send him to jail were that of being a Freemason. Masonic lodges are routinely among the first things shut down, whether it be under the Soviet period, under, uh, National Socialist period, under Franco, under, uh, Mussolini, uh, throughout the Balkans during the interwar period and then in the postwar period. Uh, we see it in Iran. That was one of the first things that was done, as well as the execution of the Iranian Grand Master. So, masonry as an entity is, is because it's not always well known and it's international, uh, is often seen as uh, a problem to totalitarian movements, as well it should be. And I think in that regard is probably one of the areas where, I don't want to say taking a political cause or a political uh, party is something that Masonry should do or support. I don't. But in the encouragement of freedom, individual freedom and responsibility, which is the fundamental basis of our enlightenment, whether the enlightenment of the uh, post-Renaissance period of the Western enlightenment that we think of, the intellectual enlightenment, or the enlightenment of spiritual awakening, our fundamental individuality and freedom is the basis of that. And in that regard, anyone who is a true brother or sister on the craft is a sworn enemy of totalitarianism. Yeah, I think we have to pluck something from what you said there, particular interest to me, individual responsibility. I think that's something we've got major problems with increasingly today. And I see it unfortunately a great deal with younger people i don't wish to strike an overly negative note but i would imagine that um someone being introduced to the ideals of of masonry um many people might find it sort of um uh, much too rigorous this idea that um you know as within so without and uh, that you i think you used the phrase recently in one of your online posts you know you either uh, make a path for yourself or you have one made for you um, it's just taking responsibility for your own actions, really, and realizing that what happens to you in life has got a great deal to do with, um, you, you know, your own uh, thoughts and actions. You know that you um, you reap what you sow, as it were. Mm -hmm. And uh, I see people just giving away their autonomy and their any sense of responsibility, and and uh, engaging in a, a denial of responsibility for uh, the outcomes in their life. And this is something which is, you know, diametrically opposed to the, the ideals uh, of Freemasonry. As, mu as much as it's a, you know, a collective coming together, 
it is one of individuals. That's how I see it anyway. Well, that is correct, because no one forces you to join. Mm. You do this of your own free will and accord. And uh, that being said, uh, well, there's nothing else to say. So, you know, if, if you don't want to be a part of it, that's fine. If you want to be a part of it, this is what you have to do. There's a, you have no right to be a member. You only have obligations once you join. You're and and that, that's something that really needs to, to sink into people is a variety of things. Now, one of the areas that comes to mind is when Masons were made up of uh, people from across all walks of life, but, of course, we see them in certain higher levels of education and leadership and what we would have called intelligentsia or, or the intellectual class back in the day as opposed to the intelligentsia today. And from that, we saw tremendous leaps and bounds in Western culture. We saw tremendous contributions. And within that framework of even esotericism, of course, we have the El Cohane of uh, the Martinez Pascuales during the French period, around 1750 or so. And uh, we saw the fabulous uh, magical activities there that were later in some part absorbed into Scottish Rite. We see a variety of rites in Germany and France and in the, the northern countries that came and went, some of them still in existence, that were, were deeply spiritual and esoteric and alchemical. And we've seen within that framework, too, uh, aspects of the Rosicrucian movement represented in Freemasonry, particularly the different Rosicrucian colleges. And from those and from that, uh, we saw the birth of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which I believe all of its founding members were Freemasons. So uh, this is where we see these crossover and these movements, uh, where it's easier to meet people. It's just that simple. And people who you have a general idea as to what can be expected of them. So, you know, in that regard, it, having that immediate connection with someone uh, on a level that goes beyond the superficial, because it has to do with values and virtues. And, and a virtue, we, that word has lost its meaning, but it means virility or strength. A virtue is a true psychic power. It's a true spiritual power. It's not just being good to be good. It, it carries a, an authenticity with it. Uh, it carries a strength with it, a strength of character. And that character is what we carry over from lifetime to lifetime. That's the only thing that lasts with, lasts with us after we die, uh, is, is the character, the strength of being that we have inculcated within ourselves. You know, those moral lessons and teachings, those moral lessons and virtues. Uh, now, if we, amplify them sufficiently, then we can get into what we think of as the truly occult or the esoteric or the uh, uh, the magical and alchemical domains of transformation. But without them there in the beginning, any lasting or meaningful transformation is not possible. <clears throat> and Freemasonry, you know, offers us among the first teachings is, uh, and, and no great secret here, is the, the 24-inch gauge or rule. And it's saying, you know, you've got 24 hours in the day, govern yourself accordingly. You know, what, what are you here to do? What are you doing with your time? How are you making yourself useful to yourself? How are you making yourself useful to your family? To your community? To your lodge? Now, how are you becoming that smooth ashlar, that smooth stone that can take its place in the, in the great temple of Solomon? And the nice thing about a smooth stone is that we have two symbols there. One is the getting rid of the rough edges, which, you know, how we, have abrasions with other people, or they may abrade us or we them. But at the same time, it also means a smooth stone is useful anywhere. 
I can put a smooth stone in anywhere in that edifice or foundation. It doesn't have something that keeps it from fitting in and being useful. So how are you being useful with your life? And that means taking responsibility for it. So even in this regard, I'd like to point out that those men who I've known in masonry and others who I've not known but who see it merely as a fraternal organization, even they serve because in their serving the organization fraternally, they support its charitable activities, and those charitable activities do tremendous good across communities. And that in and of itself is a form of karma yoga, because they don't, they don't ask for any recognition for it whatsoever. Reflecting on, on one aspect of what you've said, I honestly dislike this idea that everyone is entitled to everything with no qualification, no effort, and you can't exclude anybody from anything because it's it's somehow unfair and nobody has to put in, you know, any work, any time. It's just you can't have anything that excludes anybody from anything, basically. It's just, um, or even to, to, to flip that exclusion around, say inclusion, you know, it's like, again, everybody has to be included in everything and there can be no rules. You know, anything goes and nothing matters. Uh, that's quite pervasive these days and i i honestly have to say it's it's a it's a general sentiment that i I've, I've got issues with well that sentiment is false it's an it's a, a childish idealism it's a it's a lie it's a lie you tell people it's like look up until about the age of 12 it's very good to have participation trophies because you want to encourage participation because in the participation itself People learn. They learn about the subject matter, the topic. They learn how to play well with others. They learn how to relate well with others. So that socialization that needs to be done up until about the age of 12 is very good. And even 14, we could say, but 12 is a good breaking off point. Now, at that point, you have to prepare for adulthood. So over the next few years, particularly to the age of 18, you know, we'll say graduation from high school, there can be, and particularly by the time you reach ninth grade, okay, uh, which is true high school, not just junior high early on, it has to be clear that your grade, the results, represent your effort put in. And that we don't want to discourage people from participating in things. We don't want to turn everything into a competition. Uh, but that you don't just get a grade for showing up. Now, a perfect example of that would be the science research program that my wife has run for 30 years and is celebrating its 30th anniversary. It has produced scholars, uh, men and women now in their 20s and 30s, who have succeeded tremendously at life. One of them is a billionaire. Okay, so this is serious work. But she does not close it down to anyone. Anyone who wants to participate in learning what real science research is like can join that club. And they do very well at competition, but they're not geared towards competition. Now, that needs to be sunk, sunk in. You really need to think about that because I'm sure many of your listeners can think of a time for themselves or their family members where they joined a martial arts dojo or school or a dance school or something like that. And next thing, if they're not selling cookies... It's getting ready for the exhibition or the competition. And it's like, well, but I, I didn't sign up here for this competition to, to do trophies. I, I signed up for something else. Yeah. 
And because why? That, that kind of competition often isn't geared towards the benefit of the member participating. It's often geared towards the glory of the school. You know, it's like high school sports. High school sports are important, but they're not the end-all, be-all. Heaven forbid we should say that. Now, you have to learn uh, what it is to work with others, to participate with others, uh, to learn how to win. You know, winning isn't everything, but sometimes it is. You know, it's important to win. You have to know what it means to win, and you have to learn to what it means to lose. How do you lose well and win well? And same thing with science research in this group insurance. How do you learn to think well? How do you plan things out? You, you may never go off to do state or national competitions. That's not the point. But the person next to you may. We have to learn how to create these tents for people. But in those tents, there's requirements. If, if you don't do the work, she, she throws you out. Just like if you don't do the work on the football team, you get kicked out. Uh, and we need to understand that. We we have decided that we're going to drop rigor from almost all of our activities except sports. And I say that in the educational world. And and that has to that has to change. One of the few places where there is still some semblance of rigor, and it uh, it varies from lodge to lodge, but is in masonry because in order to get from degree to degree, you have to memorize things. It's stunning to watch a, a degree be done that's 20,000 words and it's done from memory. I mean, it's just a phenomenal thing to watch and to listen to. It's just, uh, it's moving. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com. <laughs>